0: Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and this week I think I have our most requested episode to date, which is, of course, Annabelle. As a reminder, if you have a favorite horror film that you'd like us to investigate, let us know. We're always open to new suggestions and ideas, and the best place to leave those is either on Apple Podcasts by leaving us a review, or on Twitter, where you can find us at Insidious Pod. Both places are great places to reach us, and we'd love to hear your ideas. Aside from that, not too much to announce, but if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to get this show into the ears of new listeners. And without further ado, this week's episode.
1: 2013's The Conjuring introduced horror fans all over the world to The Conjuring cinematic universe and its fictionalized version of husband and wife ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren. One creepy element of the film in particular captured the fearful imagination of viewers and found her way into their nightmares in spite of her relatively limited screen time Annabelle, the doll. The subject of one of the Warrens' investigations prior to the main storyline of the film, Annabelle is a creepy set piece that brings the audience into the world of the paranormal investigators and the haunted objects they have dedicated their lives to cataloging and containing. Arguably the most famous haunted doll to curse the silver screen since Chucky, Annabelle's maliciously glinting eyes, her garishly painted porcelain face, and the hints at her deeply sinister backstory left an indelible mark on the Conjuring franchise. Her popularity spawned several movies of her own, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, and the Conjuring equivalent of an ambitious Marvel Cinematic Universe crossover, Annabelle Comes Home, which features a variety of ghosts and ghouls coming out to play, including a spectral bride and a demonic werewolf. But before Annabelle became a cinematic sensation, she was a real doll. It turns out that even haunted dolls aren't immune to the superficiality of Hollywood because the dramatized version of Annabelle looks nothing like the original. In fact, the real Annabelle is a perfectly ordinary Raggedy Ann doll with a sweet expression and a classic head of wild red hair. This is the story of a doll, two nurses, and the horrors that hide behind even the most innocent of faces. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. In 1970, a woman was shopping in a quaint local hobby shop when she spotted a gently used Raggedy Ann doll. The doll was charming, clad in a dress patterned with blue flowers and a crisp white apron, red and white striped socks, and little black shoes. Something about the doll called out to her, and she purchased it as a gift for her daughter's birthday. You might expect that her daughter was a little girl at the time, someone who would be expecting to receive a doll as a gift. But this present was intended for the woman's adult daughter, Donna, who had recently finished nursing school and was living with Angie, another young woman taking her first steps into independent adulthood. It was an unusual addition to the house, but Donna accepted the gift gratefully and displayed it on her bed during the day. It added a bit of warmth to the place, a touch of childhood familiarity in a world filled with new grown-up challenges. For a while, that was all the doll really was. A kind gesture from Donna's mother and something that Angie never really thought twice about. It was just a children's toy, after all. Sure, sometimes Donna would come home from a long day, crawl into bed and, well, notice that the doll had changed position. But it was just a head tilted to the side, an arm at a slightly different angle. She had probably accidentally jostled the doll while getting ready in the morning or had bumped it without noticing. There was no cause for concern just because the doll had shifted a little bit throughout the day. Angie agreed and they dismissed it as sheer coincidence or their imaginations acting up. But as the weeks wore on, the doll became steadily more active, its behavior growing bolder by the day. No longer content to simply reposition itself on the bed, the doll seemed to move throughout the house while the girls were gone, as if it wanted to be noticed. They would leave in the morning with the toy politely sitting on Donna's bed, only to come home and find it sitting on the couch, waiting for them. It began to sow discord between the two roommates as they bickered over which one of them moved the doll. After all, it had to be one of them. Dolls didn't just get up and walk around on their own, right? A friend of Donna's, a young man named Lou, disagreed. Something about the doll set him on edge and gave him an overwhelming sense of discomfort that he couldn't quite explain. From the first moment he set eyes on the doll, he felt that there was something wrong with it. When Donna and Angie told him about the doll's odd behavior, he grew even more insistent. He told the girls that the doll was evil and that they should get rid of it right away. They didn't listen, laughing him off as absurdly superstitious. It was just a doll. They were adults and they weren't about to let paranoia over a simple stuffed toy drive them to irrational behavior. Besides, it was a gift from Donna's mother. They couldn't exactly throw it out with the trash, so they kept it and hoped the strange activity would subside soon. Instead, it only escalated until it was utterly undeniable. Whatever was moving the doll around, it refused to be ignored. Little pieces of parchment paper began to appear all over the house, scattered on the floor, tucked under furniture, slid beneath the cracks of doors. Donna would find them constantly, and no matter how many times she asked, Angie claimed she had nothing to do with them. In fact, she swore up and down that she didn't even own the kind of parchment paper that kept appearing. Neither did Donna. So where were they coming from? The mysterious origin of the papers wasn't the most unnerving part. On the scraps were crudely scrawled messages, reading, help us. Or, much to the girl's dismay, help Lou. What did it mean? Who had left these notes? Who were they supposed to be helping and with what? Angie and Donna were left with no concrete answers, only more questions and an increasing sense of dread whenever they were alone with the doll. One night, the activity went up a horrifying notch and the straw finally broke the camel's back. Donna came home to find Annabelle laying in her bed exactly where she had left her. At first, she was relieved to see that the doll hadn't budged in her absence, until she pulled back the blankets and found her clean white sheets stained red with blood. There was thick, crimson liquid smeared everywhere. Most notably, it was all over the doll's hands. Terrified, Donna searched for a source but found nothing. The blood, if that was indeed what it was, seemed to be coming from inside of the doll leaking out from her stuffed arms and covering everything she touched. It looked like a murder scene with the doll as the culprit. After this incident, Donna could no longer pretend that this was an ordinary toy. Desperate for some kind of relief, she and Angie pushed their skepticism to the side and contacted a local medium. The medium came by soon after, sitting in the apartment with the girls and the doll for a while, communing with the unseen forces that had been making themselves known. Then she told them a story that tugged at their heartstrings. Apparently, the apartment complex where Angie and Donna now lived had been built over a field where a seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins had been found dead many, many years ago. Bound to the land by the sudden, tragic nature of her death, Annabelle's spirit had remained on the property. When the doll arrived in the house, it presented a perfect vessel for the little girl's ghost and she had attached herself to it. From there, she had been attempting to communicate with Donna and Angie, using the little strength she had to move the doll around and write notes pleading for help. All she wanted, according to the medium, was to stay with Donna and Angie. For the first time since she had died, they made her feel safe. Moved by the sob story and caving into their kind, nurturing nature, Angie and Donna agreed to let Annabelle stay in their home with them. They had both been nursing students, and one of their greatest desires in the world was to take care of the vulnerable. Sure, it wasn't a scenario they had ever expected to find themselves in, but if they could provide this innocent spirit with a peaceful resting place, why not take the chance? This could have been the start of a heartwarming story of unlikely found family, two young women in a friendly possessed doll making it in the world together, like three men and a baby with a few more ghosts. But it wasn't that simple, and once the girls invited Annabelle in, events took a truly hellish turn. Just days after the medium visited the house, Lou began having horrific nightmares about Annabelle. In his dreams, he would be trapped in bed, a prisoner in his own body unable to move or cry out for help. As he lay there, Annabelle would climb up his legs, scrabbling over his chest until her hands wrapped around his throat with an impossible strength, squeezing until his lungs gave out. He would wake up in a cold sweat, his head pounding, gasping for the oxygen his brain had been deprived of. He became convinced that these dreams were an omen of what was to come and reached out to his friends. Lou, Angie and Donna decided to plan a road trip together, a chance to spend some time away from the house and away from Annabelle's influence. Angie and Lou were lounging around the apartment planning the details of their trip when they suddenly heard the sounds of someone moving around in Donna's room. Knowing Donna was not home, the two became immediately concerned that someone had broken in and was rummaging through the room in search of valuables. Urging Angie to keep quiet, Lou tiptoed over to Donna's closed door, pressing his ear to the wood. Inside he could hear soft, unmistakable rustling. There was someone or something inside. Prepared to defend his friend from a burglar if necessary, Lou threw open the door with a shout. Inside, however, there were no signs of activity. No masked robber, no broken windows, not an object out of place. Well, except for one. Annabelle was absent from her usual spot on the bed. Instead, she was sitting in the corner, facing the door, her expressionless black eyes trained on Lou. Frustrated and afraid, Lou reached for the doll to throw it back onto the bed where it belonged. With each step he took closer to Annabelle, however, He became overwhelmed with the feeling of someone staring at him. The sensation of a gaze burning into the back of your head as someone watches you from a hiding place. He glanced over his shoulder, already knowing what he would find. No one there. Still, the feeling persisted. Something was watching Lou move through that room, and it did so with a palpable sense of malice. He could feel the hatred raking over him as goosebumps rippled across his skin and he maintained eye contact with that damn doll that had been nothing but trouble since it first appeared. Unable to stop himself, in spite of the thick miasma of malice that hung in the air, he stretched his fingertips towards the toy. Just before he could make contact, an unbearable pain raked across his chest. He cried out, collapsing at the feeling of flesh tearing open, sliced by an invisible assailant. After catching his breath, Lou looked down his shirt to survey the damage and found a row of claw marks burned into his skin under unblemished fabric. Something supernatural had carved him up, and he knew that Annabelle had to be behind it. Angie, Donna, and Lou realized that they couldn't carry on this way, the girls sharing their home with this force. This was not the spirit of a child with only peaceful intentions in her heart. This was something fiendish, something inhuman, and they were completely out of their depth. Donna contacted an Episcopal priest who quickly referred her to a pair of paranormal investigators he knew, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The couple rushed to Donna and Angie's home and quickly confirmed their darkest suspicions without meaning to. The girls had invited evil into their home. Now, it would do anything to stay. Up next, we learn about Ed and Lorraine Warren's investigation of the case, their infamous museum of haunted artifacts, and Annabelle's enduring legacy. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. The Warrens arrived at the apartment and, after a cursory examination, came to a troubling conclusion. There was no ghost involved here. Yes, the women were being haunted by something, but it was not the lingering spirit of a seven-year-old girl. In fact, Annabelle Higgins had likely never existed in the first place. Instead, they were being targeted by something that had never been alive. A dark, malevolent spirit, most likely a demon. Lorraine Warren went on to explain that, though the doll was playing a large part in the activity, it was not actually possessed. Demons can latch on to physical objects, but their real goal is to possess a person. Whatever being was masquerading as Annabelle had grander designs in mind, Donna's soul. They didn't waste any time and arranged an exorcism of the apartment. A priest performed the rites and the Warrens removed the wicked doll from Donna and Angie's lives forever. Furious at being removed from her home, Annabelle acted out repeatedly as the Warrens drove home. The car's engine repeatedly cut out, the power steering failed, and the brakes would jam. The couple avoided driving on the highway, taking only back roads in order to minimize the risk of a deadly accident. Eventually, they made it home and Ed gave the doll a temporary place on his desk. Several times he caught it levitating a few inches off of the desk, reminding them of its power. After a few weeks, Annabelle grew bolder, acting out in more demonic ways. Like she had in her previous home, she would disappear from her usual spot and reappear throughout the house in new positions. Concerned that the activity would progress and grow violent again, the Warrens placed Annabelle in a special locked case with a plaque reading, warning, positively do not open. These are the events as Ed and Lorraine Warren have relayed them over the years. However, it would be irresponsible to tell this story and not mention a relevant piece of the Warren puzzle. The couple have routinely been exposed as frauds over the years, accused of exaggerating or even outright fabricating their stories of paranormal investigation. Though Ed claimed to be a demonologist and Lorraine a clairvoyant, Ed never studied at seminary and there was never any concrete evidence of Lorraine's supposed psychic powers. Though the Warrens built themselves an empire, an impressive legacy of cataloging and containing the supernatural, taking a long look at it exposes a wealth of cracks in the foundation. One of the largest holes in their collective story comes down to simple math. Various times the Warrens have claimed that they investigated 10,000 cases in their lives. If they looked into one case every day without a single weekend off, this would have taken them over 27 years, and that's all while they were raising a child, writing several books, and Ed was working a day job as a bus driver. Factual errors appear throughout their most famous accounts, from the Amityville Horror to the cases behind the Conjuring trilogy. When the Smurl family was tormented by a haunting that threatened to destroy their home, they reached out to the Warrens after the Catholic Church refused to grant them an exorcism. A priest from the Scranton Catholic diocese was sent to vet the couple, and was thoroughly unimpressed. He said of Ed and Lorraine, They weren't sincere, were not what they purported to be, and were given to sensationalizing. He chuckled when explaining that when he went to one of their lectures, they saw him and toned down their act. So he wore disguises when he went to their future talks. Many skeptics have pointed out that the story of Annabelle could have easily been lifted from the plot of the Twilight Zone episode, Living Doll or even from the Otto family's accounts of Robert the Doll dozens of years earlier. And yet, even with her dubious origins, Annabelle's star quality is undeniable, and she has accrued an almost supernatural level of popularity over the years. Currently, Annabelle resides at the Warren residence in Monroe, Connecticut in what used to operate as the Warren's Occult Museum prior to Lorraine's death in 2019. The museum is famous for housing Annabelle, as well as a host of other supposedly haunted objects. Some of the most notable pieces in the museum include a conjuring mirror used to summon spirits, a shadow doll with the ability to visit the living in dreams, a coffin said to have belonged to a real vampire, yes, really, and an organ that plays itself. A few of these objects make an appearance in Annabelle Comes Home, which is set in the Warrens' home and museum, However, most of the items that appear in the film were invented by the screenwriter for an added sense of horror. Thousands of ghost aficionados and a handful of curious journalists have made the trek to Connecticut over the years to visit Annabelle and see for themselves just what the fuss is all about. Sci-Fi Wire's Danny Roth celebrated the release of Annabelle Comes Home with his own trip to the Occult Museum, where he met the owners, Warren's daughter Judy and her husband Tony Spera. First, they stopped at Union Cemetery and were treated to a retelling of the story of The Woman in White, an iconic ghostly figure that drifts through the cemetery and terrifies unsuspecting motorists. Then the tour group received a lesson in psychic photography. After a tour through another cemetery, it was finally time for the main event. Annabelle. The doll. The myth. The legend herself. Before entering Annabelle's room, the tour was blessed by a priest who said a prayer over the visitors and anointed their foreheads with oil. Finally, they were prepared mentally, physically, and spiritually to see Annabelle face to worn cloth face. There she was. Positioned in her glass case, the wood specially made with holy water and its stain, and three crosses placed to represent the Holy Trinity. As an extra line of defense, the Lord's prayer and Michael's prayer are also inscribed into the wood. Tony Sparra does not beat around the bush when introducing Annabelle, saying, Is it dangerous? Yes. Is it the most dangerous object in this museum? Yes. That's a bold claim to make, especially when talking about a museum that claims to host some of the deadliest supernatural objects in the world. But Sparrow stands by it. He told Roth and the rest of the group about a priest called to the museum by the Warrens soon after they first contained Annabelle. The priest had not been impressed with her and had yelled that she was just a doll, could not do anything, and no demonic force was more powerful than the Lord. As he drove off in his brand new car satisfied with himself and the talking to he'd given the possessed toy, he collided with a tractor trailer, and the car was completely totaled. He survived the accident, but not without some emotional scars, including the harrowing experience of seeing Annabelle's face in his rearview mirror, seconds before the accident occurred. This isn't the only traffic accident Annabelle's been blamed for either. Sparrow also told the group about a young man who visited the museum with his girlfriend and laughed at the doll when Ed Warren told them the story of its origin. He found the whole ordeal to be silly and shrugged it off as nonsense designed to trick tourists. Later that same day, the man got into a terrible motorcycle accident that put his girlfriend in the hospital and him in a casket. Whether due to their respect for Sparrow's warnings or simply because Annabelle wasn't feeling especially mischievous that day, Roth and the rest of his tour group managed to grab a publicity photo with Annabelle and get home without incident. Though the museum is no longer open to the public, Annabelle still finds a way to make headlines from time to time. As if there wasn't already enough to worry about in 2020, rumors began to circulate online in August of that year that Annabelle was going to escape from her glass display box and wreak untold havoc on the world once free. The exact origin of this claim is uncertain, but it appears to have stemmed from an edit to the Annabelle Wikipedia page, made on August 13th, that claimed, the Annabelle doll escaped on August 14th, 2020, at 3 a.m. in the Warren's Occult Museum in Connecticut, USA. Of course, then the internet did what it always does, it ran with the story and jokes, memes, and panic about Annabelle's supposed escape swirled all over social media. Tony Sparrow took to YouTube to lay these rumors to rest. Annabelle did not escape, she is still locked up in the museum, and she is alive, or rather, still existing, and in one piece. It looks like Annabelle is going to continue calling Monroe, Connecticut home for the foreseeable future and has no plans for a great escape. But honestly, stranger things have happened over the last few years. And maybe Annabelle's gotten bored of a quiet life out of the public eye. Maybe she misses her fans and wants to terrify them in person once again. Sparrow himself has compared Annabelle's potentially haunted nature to a supernatural game of Russian roulette. Sure, maybe you won't get the bullet on your turn, but is it better to take your chances and fire the gun or to not play at all? Maybe Tony and everyone else at the former occult museum should put an extra lock on her cage. Just in case...
0: Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.